Hey there, friends. Pastor Paul Carter here, uh, pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the End of the Word podcast, and welcoming you here to this special episode of End of the Word. I'm in conversation today with Wesley Huff from Apologetics Canada, and we're going to be trying to answer the question together, can I trust my Bible? We'll be talking about canon, transmission, and translation. So, Wesley, welcome to the program. It is a pleasure to be with you, Paul. Before we get going, uh, I know who you are, and I'm sure many of our listeners know who you are, but there might be some people out there who aren't sure who you are. So why don't you take a minute, introduce yourself, and also talk a little bit about Apologetics Canada. Sure, great. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, my name is Wesley. I'm the Central Canada Director for Apologetics Canada, and we're a national organization that participates and runs events right across the country. Um, so I'm also a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto in the field of New Testament Studies. I'm a husband of eight years, and I'm a father of three. My oldest uh, last week turned five. Ooh, I just had to a, 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 a double think that one. Yeah. He turned five. <laughs> my, my daughter a couple of weeks ago turned three, and then my youngest is nine months. So lots of hats, um, but uh, all good ones. That's good. That's good. Well, today, as I mentioned, we're going to try and answer the question, can I trust my Bible? Uh, that gets asked a lot. And uh, I know I went to, I did my undergrad at a secular university, and uh, mm. I know that it's it's hard to get through about a month of university without somebody asking you that. And a lot of the yeah, stuff that sure. gets thrown at you is weird uh, and nonsensical, but you have to push through it anyway. And, and so we're going to try and ask and answer seven common misconceptions. These are all questions that I can recall hearing or, or attempting to answer at some point. These are pretty common. So we're going to walk mm. through them. These are your classic internet zingers. Um, and I want to be clear, I don't believe any of these things. So don't, you know, don't take little video clips and uh, post them on Twitter or whatever. Uh, I'm playing devil's advocate. I'll ask the question, but that I'll give you a chance to, to walk us through and I'll participate as well as helpful. Does that sound good? That sounds great. I have my uh, social media up and I'm ready to tweet all of your questions as if you said them. Perfect. That's exactly right. Okay. All right. Well, let's get started. First, first misconception. You often hear it said that the authors of the Bible and specifically the New Testament did not even know that they were writing scripture. I can vividly remember when I heard this one. Mm. Uh, I remember hearing this uh, from, from a lady and she, was, she said, you know, Paul would be shocked that we <laughs> are treating his, his letters as holy scripture. Uh, so how do you answer that? Yeah, it's it's a good question because I think it does make us kind of ask the questions back at ourselves. Okay, wh what do we mean when we use that word scripture? I think I would go about it in three different ways. First, very simply, we have evidence that the New Testament authors viewed each other's books as scripture. Yeah. You know, 2 Peter 3, 16, when talking about Paul's letters, Paul says that ignorant and unstable people twist Paul's words. And he, yeah, Peter, he yeah. ends the statement. Yeah, sorry. Peter says that about, yeah. about Paul. Yeah. yeah. And, and he ends the statement by saying, as they do the other scriptures, you know, putting mm -hmm. Paul right on an equal standing with scripture as a whole. Another yeah. one that's, you know, one of those that we can go to is 1 Timothy 5.18, which has Paul saying that for scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, the first half of that comes from Deuteronomy 25, four, but the second half is actually a word for word quotation in the Greek of Luke 10, seven. So he's taking two scriptures. He appears to be putting on, not appears. I think he is putting Deuteronomy of the Torah on equal standing with Luke. So we can see even from the books themselves, examples where the authors of scripture, what we would consider scripture, seem to treat each other as scripture. So I think that's one of the, the first concrete ways we can do that. Secondly, I think it's important to note that biblical setting of scripture was a Jewish one. Now, what we call the Old Testament is a collection of books that we inherit from our Jewish predecessors. And all of the New Testament books, with the possible exception of Luke, who uh, was a, a Gentile, were Jews. And they wrote those books as Jews. And so the earliest Christians who were Jewish believers in Jesus as the Messiah. And so when we read Jesus saying things like the scripture cannot be broken in, in John 10, 35, or Paul writing first Timothy to, or sorry, to Timothy rather in uh, Timothy, second Timothy three, 16 and 17, you know, the famous all scripture is God breathed. 
these are Jews operating in Jewish categories. So what are those categories? Well, I think what we can say is that first century Judaism, as well as early Christianity, was inherently covenantal. The Jewish people understood the actions of God through the lens of his covenantal promises. And so when we get to the earliest Christian writings, that type of theological covenantal mind frame, it crosses over. I mean, we literally use the term to describe these two sections of the Bible with the titles Old and New Testament from the Latin testamentum. But that Latin word in and of itself is a translation of the Greek word diatheke, which is the word for covenant. So these are the books outlining and specifying the old covenant and the new covenant. So for the old Testament or the old covenant, if we want to call it that for the sake of clarity, for it, we see back in Exodus 24, seven, that when God gives the laws to the people, they inscribe it on what they call the book of the covenant or after Moses communes with God for 40 days in Exodus 34, 28, he goes and he writes on tablets, the words of the covenant going into the prophets. Isaiah is given the word of the Lord in Isaiah 38, uh, sorry, 30 verse eight. And he, it says he goes off and writes it on a tablet and inscribes it on a scroll. And this carries over right into the Christian mind frame. The Last Supper was understood as a covenantal meal. Zachariah understood the coming of his son, John the Baptist, as the fulfilling of God's covenant and of the coming Messiah. And then Paul describes the ministry of the apostles as being ministers of the new covenant, which I think is a not so subtle reference to Jeremiah 31, 31 and the new covenant that God promises. Hmm. And there are countless of other examples. But what this all means is that the Christians writing the New Testament books were immersed in this type of covenantal structure. And I think we can say that from that, by virtue of their Jewish heritage, they would have naturally seen this promise manifested in conjunction with writing scriptural books. So when we get to the apostles, who are witnesses of these events, who observed the new covenant actually coming into fruition, I don't think it's a stretch to say that when they then record those records, particularly in cases like, you know, the, the authors of Matthew, John, Paul, Peter, Jude, James, those individuals, when they write their books, individuals who are witnesses of Jesus's actual covenantal ministry, it, it would have been natural to understood, to understand those as having more than I think just a literary significance. Yeah. So like the writings that codified and narrated and outlined God's old covenant, they would have understood that by them writing these things down in the new covenant, they were doing something special. They were I think chronicling God's there, inbreaking. I think what you're highlighting there is something that a lot of people don't necessarily appreciate, which is that the apostles self understood as mm -hmm. the new covenant equivalent of the old covenant prophets. Yeah. Uh, you can see that very clearly. I mean, uh, in Ephesians 2, 19 to 20, Paul talks about how the church is being built up on the foundation of the prophets and apostles with Christ Jesus himself as cornerstone. So there's a there's a, an awareness there that what the prophets were in the old covenant, the apostles are in the new covenant. They're, yeah, they're the people who so. say, thus saith the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, all right, so if you've got small p prophets, because there is a sense in, you know, after Peter's speech in Pentecost, there is a sense in which any Christian filled with the Holy Spirit is a prophet in some sense, right? Is mm. a small p prophet. Uh, you know, Peter says, you're old men, you're young men, you're rich, you're poor. Everybody's, everybody's going to be filled with the Spirit and prophesy. Okay. But Paul says, you understand that I'm not a small p prophet. I'm a big p prophet. And so he, you know, he says in, in 1 Corinthians 14, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am saying to you, that I am writing to you actually, are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not to be recognized. So Paul's saying the, the criteria for speaking in the church is that you recognize my authority as a writing prophet, uh, as an yeah, apostle. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, yeah. that is, I mean, that is in my mind, the clearest indication that, that Paul understood that what he is writing is the equivalent of what old covenant prophets like Jeremiah are writing. He's writing, thus saith the Lord. And to speak in the church, you have to operate within the confines of that. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's exactly what's going on. And, and I think I think there's other internal evidences that we can look at. So one of my favorites is the Gospel of Matthew, because I think that's a really clear one. Now, our Protestant Old Testament has the exact same books as the Hebrew Old Testament. We might talk about that a little bit more yep. later, yep. but we order the group differently. So we have the same books as the ancient and modern Jews, but we we group them into a different order. And 
there are only two books in the Bible to start with a genealogy, Chronicles and Matthew. Now, why is that pertinent? Well, because Chronicles is about the Davidic covenant. And it's the the last book in the Old Testament. That's exactly it. It's the last book in the Hebrew Old Testament. So God's promise of a just king who would rule, there's this expectation that that would be fulfilled. So the last book of our Old Testament is Malachi. But exactly what you said there, there, Paul, it's it's the the last book of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Tanakh, is Chronicles. And it's because there's an expectation that it's not the end of the the story. The son of David, the Messiah, he's going to come. And so where Chronicles starts with tracing Adam to David, Matthew picks up where it leaves off with literally the, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. And so on top of that, Matthew presents Jesus as fulfilling Jewish expectations in general, not just Davidic expectations, but he portrays Jesus as being the new and greater Moses, because that is the promise in Deuteronomy 18, 15. And this subtle, but I think it's, it's subtle within the text, but I, I think it's there. Jesus and Moses both come out of Egypt. Moses crosses the Red Sea. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. Moses is in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. Moses receives the law on a mountain. Jesus gives the law from a mountain. And so all that to say, I I don't think it's a stretch to say that authors like Matthew knew exactly what they were doing and that they were in fact writing scripture. Absolutely. And I think we could probably say something similar about the beginning of Mark's gospel, the beginning of John's gospel. The the gospel writers very self-consciously presented themselves as continuing the story of the scriptures of the Bible. All right. We Mm -hmm. uh, we probably should move quicker here if we're going to get through all these, but that was good. And and that's an important one. Next uh, common misconception that's floating out there in the internet world uh, would be this. The early Christians disagreed vehemently about which books to add into the canon. We hear that all the time. And that's become very popular now that people are, uh, you know, talking about the gospel of Thomas and the gospel of mm. Judas and all this kind of stuff. They're saying, you know, hey, there was there was a whole library of stuff out there. And uh, there was a huge discussion about which books are in and which books are out. And who knows, maybe they made the wrong decisions. What do you say to that? Yeah, well, it's interesting because uh, over the summer, a colleague of mine, Andy and I were actually, we flew out to Egypt and we filmed what will eventually be a three-part series video and one video series rather. And one of the videos is exactly on the subject. You know, we went to the Nag Hammadi Desert and told the story of the discovery of what's called the Nag Hammadi Library, where we find the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip. And so this is a, a subject that's very close to my own heart because I think that those actually, their existence shows not that they are these big contenders, but actually the opposite. And so in one sense, the answer to to your question is that there were actually conversations about which books were scripture, but probably not in the way that a lot of people have heard them framed. So the conversations were not on the, is the gospel of Thomas, is the gospel of Judas, are, are those contenders for the Bible? What was more of an emphasis is basically as early as you want to push them, there's u- unanimity on the four gospels in Paul. Yeah. And, and that's pretty straightforward. Early writers like Irenaeus and Theophilus of Antioch, right in the second century, state this very clearly. There's only four gospels, and it's impossible for, for there to be any more. That's actually what Irenaeus says. And again, yeah, and they had some weird three. reasons for thinking that, like the four corners of the earth. And well, <laughs> but the, you're absolutely right. Whatever, for whatever reasons, they, they were like four gospels, that's it, no more. Yeah, yeah. We read those today and we we think, you know, you read uh, Irenaeus and you're like four principal winds and yeah. the cherubim or four face. And we're like, well, what's going on here? Well, it uh, like a uh, weird argument, but his thesis is four. There can only be yeah. four. Yeah, exactly. And the only books that there were discussion over, and that's what it was, was discussion. It was not, you know, vehement disagreement per se, uh, were actually books that we actually ended up having in our canon. So it's books like Second Peter. Yeah. Second and third John, James and Hebrews. Those James. were the ones that the yep. dust kind of took time to settle on. Yep. And a big part of that was because of those other books, because there were groups like the Gnostics and the Docetics who were appropriating Jesus and they were taking the names of early Christians who were influential, like Peter and like James and like Philip, and they were attaching names to them. Yeah. But but it was it was false. These books were written decades and the majority of them centuries after those people had died. But it was because of 
those books that were floating out there, particularly because there were a lot that had the name John and the name Peter associated with them, that right. the early church said, hey, we need to do our homework and our due diligence to make sure that we get the right books. So, you know, we have one letter of Peter. There's this other second letter of Peter. You know, we have a gospel that's written by John. We have an apocalypse that's written by John. And we have three letters that's written by John. We, we got to make sure we, we have this right. right. And so I actually think that's a good thing. Yeah. But any, any of those conversations, they're not actually about the more controversial ones. They're not about the, you know, there's lost and, and secret gospels. No, exactly uh, right. And, and in fact, uh, you know, I think a decent argument can be made that 22 of the 27 New Testament books were basically locked in by AD 150. Um, so there, there is a mild conversation about mm -hmm. the remaining five books, all of which eventually came in. There, there is no raging debate about including the gospel of Thomas. There's no rage because that literally was never a contender. Yeah. Those books were recognized pretty early on as, you know, not being written by the person they were associated with and not, not being authentic apostolic documents. Mm -hmm. All right, a third misconception that floats around out there is that the Christian canon didn't even emerge until the third or fourth century. So what would you say to that? Yeah, well, I've already mentioned that the earliest Christians would have had that natural inclination by virtue of understanding of scripture to look for and assemble the canon of the New Testament. Yeah. So on top of that, I think it's clear that by the end of the first and beginning of the second century, we basically got every book that we call the New Testament being discussed and disseminated as scripture. And used. So there's, yeah. there's a document, I think it's what you're referring to before, the Miratorium Fragment. And its inception date is debated, but I think there's good reason to think that it's the, the late second century. And it lists 23 of our 27 books by name and as scripture. Mm -hmm. And the argument for this third or fourth century date, which we often hear getting thrown around, is basically because of Athanasius. So Athanasius, the early church father, in his 39th festal letter, yeah. which was written in 397 AD, states that there are 27 books in the New Testament. Now, I think if you were to go back in time and ask him if you thought he was making any type of official pronouncement on what canon was, I think he would have actually been a little bit more confused. I think he's more talking about what shouldn't be there more than he's talking about some type of closing of the discussion on what should be there. So after all, basically every book of the New Testament had been quoted and referenced and yeah. used as authoritative scripture in major writings and major events, you know, least of all, the Council of Nicaea took place 72 years before Athanasius, and they quote almost all of the books in those documents. Well, isn't there and a sermon so, by by Origen as well around the year 250 that yep. mentions all 27? So, I mean, they're really, it, it, it sounds like it was a working canon before it was an official canon, um, mm -hmm. but it was a working canon, um, sounds like at least in its core by 150, it was a working canon in its entirety by 250 and then was recognized and celebrated or not celebrated, but it was recognized and affirmed as such, um, you know, sometime after that. Is that a decent summary? Yeah, I think so. And I think that word recognized is very key in there. That's yeah. that's I'm glad you used that word because that's exactly the right word that should be used in the sense that the church did not choose books. They recognized the books yes. that had authority. Yeah, and yeah. In, in one sense, um, I wasn't the one who came up with this, but I like to say the early Christians, if you ask them, why did you choose, say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? I think they would say, what do you mean choose? Yeah. And ask you back something like, why did you choose your parents? Right. No, I, I didn't choose my parents. My parents were my parents by virtue of me being born by them. I think it's yeah. something similar. They're recognizing the authority that the books already had, and they're stating as such. All right. Fourth misconception that floats around out there is that the apocryphal books are just as valid as the books that made it into the canon. So again, you hear this idea, Bart Ehrman will talk about this. Mm -hmm. These these other books are out there and uh, you know, we we should we should be reading them the same way we're reading because really, you know, his, the history is written by the winners and so uh, what we have is just basically a bible that that was preferred by the winning group, but there may be other documents out there that would be just as helpful. Yeah, well, I mean, the simplest answer to that is that none of the apocryphal books, and particularly the apocryphal gospels, have any historical connection either to a date of composition or even their content being tied to the first century. And so if it's yeah. outside of the time frame of someone who knew Jesus or someone who knew someone who knew Jesus, it's already disqualified.
and and the content is noticeably inferior. Um, mm. Like if you read and and so I just in my readings when when I read the church fathers even I appreciate the church fathers, but it is like dropping off a cliff when you go from reading the New Testament to to reading the church fathers. There's a noticeable difference in in in, in quality. Um, mm. And and when you read the apocryphal gospels, I mean, it's hard not to laugh out loud at some of this stuff. Uh, it, the Gospel of Peter has some really bizarre elements to it, like Jesus um, becomes a giant in the tomb, like so he's in the tomb, and then at the moment of the resurrection, he, he like explodes into this giant, and then he comes out and he's accompanied by a talking cross, and you're just like, what is this? And and uh, and then the Gospel of Thomas says some really weird stuff about women. Uh, who need to become men in order to be saved. And you're like, ah, I'm thankful that didn't make it into the Bible, right? Like that, there's there's some odd stuff in, in these apocryphal gospels as well, is there not? Yeah, totally. And that's on purpose because they were they were written by a group called the Gnostics. Yeah. And, or at least the majority of them were written by a group called the Gnostics. And the idea behind Gnosticism is, so to back up, historical biblical Christianity is that salvation is something outside of you done to you on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Gnosticism was kind of this pagan syncretism where salvation wasn't something outside of you. Salvation was something inside of you. And you were able to unlock this deity that existed within your soul by secret knowledge. And so some of these gospels, you read them and you'll go, I don't, I can't make heads or tails of this. And that's on purpose because if you were enlightened, if you had realized your deity ship, that secret knowledge would be unlocked to you. And it would all of a sudden, the nonsense would become wisdom. So they're actually confusing on purpose. So sometimes I say, you know, sometimes when I'm doing talks and someone asks, why isn't the gospel of Philip included in the Bible? I like to say, I will Have send you give me your email. <laughs> I will send you a copy of the gospel of Philip. And then you can email me back and tell me why it's not in the Bible. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, most of these criticisms or, or questions that are, are raised, people have just been hand fed these things from the internet. It's almost like there must yeah. be a list out there, like 10 questions you can ask to make a first year uh, university Christian student cry. Um, yeah. and, and, and there's, so the people who are asking these questions typically have not read any of these documents, uh, because I think if they did, they'd immediately know the answer to the questions they're asking. All right. Fifth misconception out there is this idea that the, uh, apocryphal books were just as popular and widely used as the books. That, I, I'm borrowing a list by the way, from Michael Kruger. I've adapted it slightly, but I feel like you've already answered that. So I'm going to skip that. We're going to go to the sixth misconception. The sixth misconception is the idea that the new Testament books were voted in at the Council of Nicaea. And I vividly remember uh, when I first heard somebody say this and my jaw like just about hit the floor because I'm like, are you are you arguing from a Dan Brown novel? Like what? That's that's like trying to make a theological argument by citing The Simpsons like that. That's not valid. Uh, but this this person had read the Dan Brown novel and thought that she had stumbled upon some like mm. devastating truth. And I'm like, no, it's a fictional novel. Yeah, unfortunately, I've heard this from Christians who it's just oft repeated so much that they they <laughs> believed it because they just don't know any better, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, genuine, well-meaning people who follow Christ uh, are just unfortunately as ignorant as as people who don't sometimes. I think the the simple problem with that assertion is that we know exactly what happened at the Council of Nicaea, and it yeah. had nothing to do with any type of vote or choosing of the books of the Bible. As I previously yeah. said, the documents that did proceed from Nicaea, which or or that were quoted at Nicaea, um, use the the what we would call the New Testament documents almost as like proof texts. Yeah. But what did come from Nicaea was obviously the Nicene Creed which you know we should all know the, that mm -hmm. trinitarian creed a 20 list of doctrinal issues and then there was a synodal epistle and all of them quote the books of the new testament as if they already hold authority and so nicaea's main purpose was the arian controversy right um, a view that you know came from a pu pupil of this guy lucian of antioch whose name was arius and he taught not only that the son of God was eternally subordinate to the father, but that the son was not everlasting, but created by the father at a specific time. Nothing about the books, nothing about, no, nothing even close to talking yeah. about the canon. And so I actually, I wrote a blog post a couple of years ago. I wrote uh, called What Happened at the Council of Nicaea. Mm -hmm. 
And I think what I, I got in the research for that was the this pseudo historical perspective, although it was popularized by, as you mentioned, uh, the Da Vinci Code, I think it actually comes from a ninth century Greek manuscript known as the Synodicon Vetus. And the Synodicon Vetus eventually got its hands, uh, got down into the hands of Voltaire, of all people, who put it in his volume three, of his philosophical dictionary. And I think that's yeah. where Dan Brown got it from. <laughs> but it's nothing more than a ninth century error, a historical error that I think was just pulled from thin air. But yeah. it got into the hands of someone who wrote something important. And then Dan Brown published it in a novel. And it just kind of caught on wildfire. Unfortunately, yeah. though, if, if any of us knew even just basic facts about what actually happened at the Council of Nicaea, the Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code really wouldn't have made as much of an impact well, as it did. Facts ruin lots of good movies and books, right? <laughs> so. It's true. It's true. <laughs> All right. Uh, seventh misconception out there is that the Bible is just a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation. And therefore mm -hmm. we have no idea what was actually in it. I hear this one all the time. And this is actually fairly popular among uh, Muslim critics uh, or antagonists uh, towards Christianity. Mm -hmm. And this one also, you know, kind of makes my jaw hit the floor because, you know, having uh, taken Greek in, in my undergrad, you know, I was studying classics and religious studies in my undergrad. And then uh, doing tons of exegesis, having handled manuscripts, you're like, how in the world do people think this, right? Because uh, this idea that that it's just sort of broken telephone, it's like, no, like we we have manuscripts that that go back centuries, more than centuries. We have manuscripts that go back to the you know third century, uh, and and even you know a few fragments that go back earlier. And the manuscript evidence for Christianity compared to Herodotus, which I studied in third year university is overwhelming. Like there are only a handful of copies of Herodotus. And I think the earliest one is 11th century. And we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts of the new Testament that go all the way back. Right. So I just, I, this again, uh, I, it's hard to understand how this one is going around out there, but it is. So what would you say to that? Yeah, I would say a, unfortunately it's really common and B, I actually just posted a video on my social media accounts on my, my Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Uh, that are a section of a talk I gave where I addressed this exact objection from the popular podcaster, Joe Rogan. I'm, I'm a bit of a fan of Joe Rogan. I, I like his stuff. But when it comes to anything related to the Bible, he seems to have thrown all of his critical thinking skills out the window. Yeah. And basically this idea, like you said, it just comes from straight ignorance. And I, I don't mean that as kind of an insult. I mean that as they actually haven't taken the time to look. They're completely it, unaware. It's, it's a very easy, easily falsified misconception. And so you wonder, like, this is something actually, I'm pretty sure you could fix by Googling. Like uh, Google yeah. is the manuscript evidence for the New Testament strong. And, you know, I'm, you'll get a hundred reliable articles comparing it to things like, you know, Seneca, Herodotus, et cetera. And, and you'll discover it's incredible. It's incomparably strong. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if you, um, the idea is kind of that, that the Bible was translated from some previous language like yeah. Spanish, and then that was translated from the German <laughs> and that was translated from yeah. the Latin and you, you work your way up so that you literally have a translation of a translation of a translation, which is a fabrication, yeah. that whole kind of narrative. So when you hold a modern English Bible in your hands it's not translated from previous translations. It's translated from the original languages, the two right. major languages, Greek and Hebrew. And then there's one minor language, um, Aramaic. And I have even videos on my YouTube channel where I have multiple facsimiles that I work with. And one of the videos, I go through a section of John chapter one. I'm looking at a late second century manuscript and I'm just you know, site translating it through. And shocker of shockers, if you're following along in an English Bible, guess what? It says the exact same yeah. thing. Well, like I and have my, so, my Greek Bible sitting right here on my on my desk. And you you when you say translate it, what you end up mumbling is exactly what you've got written before you in the you know ESV or the New American Senate or whatever. Like it's yeah, uh it it's bizarre. So you're just to be clear for people listening, if you're holding an English Bible in your hands, that has been translated from you know Hebrew, and as you say, a, a couple places where there's Aramaic in the old testament. Uh and Aramaic is sort of a dialect of Hebrew anyway. So that's, uh, and then uh, your New Testament is translated from Greek manuscripts 
Uh, and so, and these men, and we have families and families and families and stacks and stacks and stacks of these manuscripts so that we can compare them. So actually let's say a quick word about that. Cause I didn't think of this as a misconception. As I said, I just adapted this from a list by Michael Kruger, but um, say a little bit about how, so like I said, I, I've got this uh, Greek new Testament. I've got two Greek new Testaments sitting at my desk right now. And um, there'll be little notes saying, well, this, this little uh, fragment is contained in this manuscript family, but it isn't in that manuscript family. Say a quick word about how we know that the Greek, the Greek Bible that we're using to translate all these things, how do we know that that's accurate? Yeah. So if you are holding a modern translation, an NIV, NASB, ESV, you know, what have you, it's based off of what's called a critical edition of the Greek New Testament. Mm -hmm. And so that's either going to be, there are two versions, the Nessie Aland, which is on his 28th edition, and then the United Bible Society, they're in their third edition. And so one is kind of more advantageous for translators and one is more advantageous for academics, but it's the same text, but it's the, the notes at the bottom, which is called the textual apparatus. Yep. where the meat and the potatoes comes from. And that is highlighting where there are differences in the manuscripts, where there are alternative readings, where maybe the early church fathers are quoting either, or maybe even other traditions like the Syriac or the Latin. And so it's an amalgamation of the manuscript tradition. So um, I have in my office, I have, because of my academic work, I have a number of facsimiles. And so um, this is P66, which is a facsimile of an almost entire copy of the Gospel of John from the late second century. And um, so what the textual apparatus does is it looks at something like P66 and it notes where, okay, where does this differ in later copies or earlier fragments of the Gospel of John? And the vast majority of these differences are completely inconsequential. Yeah, a lot of times it's are... changing the word Jesus to he. Or, in fact, more commonly, putting the word Jesus in for he. And when I edit right. my sermons, I do that all the time, right? Like, I'll edit my sermon and realize, oh, I've said he like three times in a row, and people might be forgetting who the he is. So I'll, I'll throw in Jesus or throw in God, whatever, who I'm talking to. Yeah. Though, I mean, a fair number of what are considered, you know, these textual inconsistencies are that. Uh, like, they're, yeah. they're in, inconsequential. Yeah, and translation um, yep. or sorry, rather ones that don't have any significance on translation. So there early Spelling. on, there was no standardization of spelling, right? Yep. Exactly. Yep. So, you know, you can get a passage and I've seen this where John on a single page, the name John is spelt three different ways or Simon, now, Simeon, like it's, yeah, that's right. So yep. if we translate all of those in English, they're all going to say John or Simeon. It doesn't matter that they're spelt differently. Right. And so that's the vast majority of these differences. That's not to say there aren't differences that matter. There yep. are a few There's differences a that genuinely matter but we're very aware of those and so and they've all it, been flagged in so again and so if you're a university student listening to this and yeah. you've been told you know hey the greek manuscript blah 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 that these things have been compared and cross compared so many times that we now know the few little fragments that are there that that shouldn't be right so you think of the ending of mark's gospel for example like that is flagged in your bible like there'll be a little note saying this was not in the earliest you know, copies that we have. And, mm -hmm. and there may be a variety of reasons for that. But the point is, everything has been flagged through uh, cross comparison. And so you can yeah. be very confident that the Greek New Testament underneath your ESV or your NIV or whatever is is accurate. Yep, totally. Yeah. All right. So uh, we've worked our way through those. Those are really important because like I said, th those are the most common that I can think of. That's why I didn't bother to kind of make up my own list. Michael Kruger <laughs> had a list of them and I've been asked all those questions. So I thought I'm just going to go ahead and use that. Uh, let's uh, let's run through Old Testament canon. I'm, I'm going to fire six questions at you. Answer you know as many as you can. And, uh, and then we'll move on to the New Testament. So here are the six questions. Do the Jews hold to the same basic doctrine of scripture with respect to the Old Testament that we do as Christians? Number two, when was the Old Testament canon closed? Number three, were the Jewish apocryphal books accepted as scripture by the Jews? Uh, what was the criteria for admitting books into the Old Testament canon? What was the attitude of the early Christians towards the Old Testament canon? And then number six, why do Catholic Bibles include the apocrypha in their Old Testament listings, whereas Protestant Bibles generally do not? All right, so you want to hmm. hit those, hit a few of those? Yeah. Why don't I work backwards? So sure. the, the criteria for admitting books into the Old Testament. Now, the key one had to do with pronouncement. Is it linked with either a direct, thus saith the Lord statement from a prophet, right. or was it tied to the covenantal promises of God? 
So those were key ones. Uh, a second major one was age. It had to have the mark of ancient Israelite antiquity. And then the third one is basically, did it have uh, Hebrew origination? So was it written in the Hebrew language? Because there were other Jewish books that weren't. There were other Jewish books that, you know, after Alexander the Great took over the ancient world, the Jews that had become Hellenized, had become influenced by, um, for very normal reasons, um, uh, were speaking and writing and reading in Greek. And so they wrote things in Greek. But um, those were not considered scriptural because they didn't have this kind of mark of antiquity on them or a connection to the voice of God. So just to pause on mark of antiquity, I know what you mean by that, but I just want to make sure that, again, the 21-year-old university student listening to us knows what we're talking about. Basically, uh, for it to be considered uh, for consideration in the Hebrew canon, it had to have been written between the time of Moses and the time of Esther. Yes. Um, and, and because after that, again, you, as you say, um, there was a lot of Hellenization, which means, uh, to become Greek, the use of Greek language, et cetera. But so, so basically from, from the time of Esther as the back end, all the way to the, to Moses at the front end, uh, that was, it had to fall between that time period. Is that what, you're, mm. is that what you mean by, uh, standard of antiquity? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And I think related to that, these other books, because I think this hits um, some of the previous questions, what is sometimes called the Apocrypha, or you'll yep. see it called the Deuterocanonical books in, right. say, uh, a Catholic Bible, um, were those ever accepted as scripture? The, the simple answer to that is not by the Jews. Yeah, And these were important books. They were influential books for the Jews. But there was a unanimous understanding within the Jewish community that the last book chronologically to fall into the category of scripture in terms of this like a pronouncement was what we have in our Bible, Malachi, yeah. um, as, the, as the last book. So when we get to the Christian era, though, there is a big discussion. So you have individuals like uh, early church fathers like Melito of Sardis and Origen and Athanasius, just to name a few, that because Paul says in Romans 3, 2, that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God and that the Jews did not consider these other books scripture, that that was a good enough reason not to include them. And so it's it's more the Latin fathers in the West, guys like Augustine and Innocent the First, that really started to push their inclusion due to other factors, particularly well, so for, how many Christians. He wanted us to read them, but he did not consider them, to the best of my understanding, he didn't consider them Holy Scripture as well. Well, he fights Jerome on the inclusion of them in the Latin Vulgate. So Jerome, Jerome, Jerome didn't consider them uh, to be part of the canon. No, he didn't. And, and um, Augustine was pushed against him quite strongly to include them in the scriptural canon. And it's largely because of Augustine that Jerome ends up including them in his translation of the Latin, because mm -hmm. there were a number of the deuterocanonical books that Augustine did think were scripture. But Jerome, to his credit, who was a very good scholar, knew both Greek and Hebrew, which um, Augustine did not, not very well. Uh, Jerome went back to Israel and he's recorded as talking with the rabbis and asking them specifically, okay, what was scripture? What did you consider scripture? And based on that, um, there was a, there was a, a strong kind of push for him in that. Now the debate raged on until, you know, into the middle ages, the council of Well, Florence. the debate within Christendom raged on. So yes, just to be yes. clear, the Jews had no such debate. Uh, exactly, they, like yeah. the Jews will tell you, they've got 22 books in, in their Old Testament canon, which of course is confusing for us because we have 39 Old Testament books, right? But yes. uh, they have 22 because they number them differently. Like, so first and second Samuel are one book. First and second Kings are one book. First and second Chronicles are right. one book, et cetera, et cetera. So, but they, you know, they'll tell you they've got, and they put like Lamentations with Jeremiah and stuff like that. Um, and Ruth mm -hmm. inside Judges, blah, blah, blah. But, mm -hmm. um, but they've got 22 books and they would say, yep, 22 We've always had 22, like Josephus uh, is talking about 22 books in, in the first century. Um, and they they would even say there's a, this kind of mystical reason for that. It, it aligns with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which is kind of confusing because sometimes you feel like right. there's 22 or 24, whatever. But uh, right. they, they've had a closed canon since the first century AD. It was yeah. the Christians who who were kind of not entirely sure whether whether it was 22 or 22 plus. Yeah, so let's 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 address that then, because I think in in one sense they did have a closed canon, and in another sense they didn't. So, uh, like I mentioned in the answer to the the first question we talked about, the authors of the Bible, uh, for the authors of the Bible, the canon wasn't and isn't closed in a sense, 
but it also is not a free for all. So right. um, N.T. Uh, Wright, the New mm -hmm. Testament scholar and theologian in his book, The New Testament People, or is it New Testament and the People of God? That's what it is. Yep. He says that the great story of the Hebrew scriptures was inev inevitably read in Jesus's day as a story in search of a conclusion. Mm -hmm. And in yep. that, that he's talking about that expectation of the coming Messiah, right? What I was right. talking about before, where there's this, there's this expectation that, okay, someone's going to follow this up and that would be organically and necessarily. Well, that's what Paul says in his writings. trial before Agrippa, right? he says, I stand exactly. here because of the hope of the Jews and he lands that on Jesus Christ. And I mean, that's exactly what he says. Yeah. So in one sense, the canon, especially in Jesus's day of the Jewish scriptures was open, but at the same time, like you said, you mentioned Josephus, the Romano Jewish historian in the second century, he argues very specifically in against Appian book one. And then again, in antiquities of the Jews, that there was a specific amount of books that were, as he phrases it, laid up in the temple. And his argument is against the pagan Greeks who he says have an immeasurable amount of texts that yeah. are considered holy. And the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, are limited to 22. And that's the number, like you mentioned, Paul, that continually we see referenced in the Second Temple period when this is discussed, either the number 22 or 24, depending on how you order them. Yeah. But depending no, on whether you, you, you know, stick to... Ruth inside of Judges and, and Jeremiah with Lamentations, that's, that's right. the only discrepancy. Right. And for the modern Protestant, nothing to worry about there. Once again, those are the same books. We just yep. order them differently. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Uh, now, so here's here's a uh, just to, to play off that a little bit, but uh, Christians and Jews do not view the Old Testament in exactly the same way, uh, and I'm I'm not sure that most Christians understand this. Um, the the Jews would say, yeah, there's a canon, but they would say there's kind of like a descending order within the canon. So, um, yeah, quoting Stephen Weiland here in his introduction to Judaism, he says the three sections of the Hebrew Bible have a descending order of sanctity. The Torah, so that's the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. The Torah was believed to be the direct word of God spoken to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. The books of the prophets were believed to have been revealed to them in the spirit of prophecy. The messages from God, but the words of the prophets' own words. The writings were believed to have been written in the Holy Spirit. They were inspired by God, but had a human authorship. The books of the prophets and the writings exist for inspirational purposes, but actual Jewish law and practice is derived solely from the five books of the Torah, close quote. So that was a bit of an argument within Judaism, but, but I would say Christians have a, a more monolithic understanding of the old covenant. They would just say all scriptures, God breathed and, and, and useful and profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, et cetera. Um, it, it, do you agree with that? Is that anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think, I think that that's on the, on the whole true. Uh, I would also say that it depends on what group or sect of Judaism you're yes, talking about. Yes, 100%. And we even see this in Jesus's day. You know, a major yeah. theological difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was 100%. their view of scripture. Yeah, now, I think that's often played a little bit too strongly because of all the disagreements you see Jesus having with the Sadducees, they never once go, well, you know, that there's an argument about that, you know, the big discussion. Don't you know that, Jesus? Yeah. But I think it is clear that the Sadducees held to a smaller canon yep. with at least a face value and emphasis on the first five books of the Torah. And, and Jesus Pharisees, does seem to rebuke them for that. Like he, he says, you don't know the scriptures yes. or the power of God. That's your problem, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so there is that descending order. And I, I mm -hmm. do think if you, if you talk with modern, particularly uh, ultra Orthodox or Hasidic Jews, there'll also be that type of attitude where the Torah is prominent and the, the, the prophets and the writings are held in high regard, but not in the same way that we as Christians would, or even that I think you would see in Pharisaical early Judaism. Modern Judaism is kind of the, their, their forefathers were the Pharisees. The Pharisees ended up becoming the rabbis after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But I think the Pharisees actually held more of a monolithic perspective yes. than modern Jews today. You can see that a little bit in Paul's trial, where he he puts his finger on the resurrection, exactly. sort of to divide the the Pharisees and, and the and the Sadducees. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So just again to bring this down for a landing for our twenty one year old university student listening on, uh, Christians and Jew or sorry Protestants and Jews have basically the same Old Testament canon, the same list of Bible uh, books of the Bible. Is that correct? Protestants and Jews. Yes, they have the oh. same books. Of the exact Bible. same list. Exact same books. Okay. So then here here's the question. How come our, our Roman Catholic neighbors have more books in the Old Testament than than the Protestants or the Jews? Where, where did that come from? 
Yeah. So um, the there was that discussion. And if you're interested in, if the listener's interested in more of an in-depth discussion on this, I, I have a video on my YouTube channel called Why Do Protestants and Catholics Have a Different Old Testament Books? Yeah. But um, that was more of a discussion related to some of the tradition that had developed over the centuries between the early church period going into the Middle Ages. So there were these other books. And a, a Part of that conversation is that the Old Testament was translated into Greek very early on, about anywhere between the fourth century BC, and um, some of it is still happening after the time of Jesus. But by the time you get into second, third, fourth centuries AD, all of the Old Testament books, which uh, this major stream, there were a number of streams of Greek translations of the Old Testament, but the major one is called the Septuagint. It is very prominent. And it's less of an official Bible. Like we like to think of it in, because you can go online and you can buy a Septuagint and it's, you know, in a single bound volume. Yeah. I have one on my show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that sometimes misleads us because yeah. in the ancient world, no one would have thought of them as a monolith, but mm -hmm. we, for the sake of, you know, academic clarity, we group them together and there were, it's more of a mini library of Jewish texts that have been translated. And yeah, so the one on my shelf says the Septuagint with Apocrypha, right? And that's like, right. yeah, okay, welcome. Right. This is the problem. Yeah, yeah. And 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 that's and so that kind of tripped up the early Christians yeah. to a certain degree who were reading both the Old and New Testaments in Greek. And so because there was this collection of writings, remember those ones that weren't included in the Old Testament, they had Greek originations, not Hebrew originations, which is one of the reasons why they were they excluded from the, the Jewish canon. Yeah. Um, but there were some parts of them that at least were considered as proof texting for things like the developments of the idea of purgatory, purgatory for yeah. prayer for the dead. And so they became kind of the pet passages for yeah. some of these individuals who over the decades and centuries after, you know, the, the apostles started to include these ideas within early Christian practice and tradition. And so because they at least appeared to be a proof text for some of those things, they were included into particular groups own understanding of, of the scriptural canon. Let me, let me uh, state it in oversimplified terms. And then, and then you can correct me if I've, if I've been overly simple, um, sure. I'm going to provide like a bare basic summary of how this happened. So in essence, we've got uh, the Old Testament, the books that that all Protestants, uh, you know, would recognize, mm -hmm. and then uh, we've got this other group of of writings that were about the history of the Jews. So they were about the Old Testament people, but they were largely, not exclusively, but largely written in Greek. That the early church kept around as you know useful sources, very interesting. But then uh, at the time of the Protestant Reformation, in order to push back against uh, the, you know, Luther and the, and the doctrines that he was advancing and the doctrines that he was uh, trimming out, specifically the doctrine of purgatory, these, these books were added into or affirmed as part of the Old Testament canon by the Council of Trent, largely, again, in, in response to, to Protestantism. Is that overly simplistic or is that a fairly decent uh, explanation of how we got here? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a little tricky to say they were added in, um, in the same way that I think it's tricky to say that they were taken out because while there's no debate whatsoever within church history of the 66 books, yeah. there is ongoing, at least conversation. Now to preface that there were popes who argued against their inclusion, Yep. Even when you get to the Reformation, some key players on the side of Rome against guys like Luther, big names like Desiderius Erasmus, Cardinal Cayetan, Cardinal Jimenez, they would have been on Luther's side. That's right. They didn't saying, want those, the books there either. Yeah. And so yep. it wasn't until, as you mentioned, the Counter-Reformation, 1546, with the Council yep. of Trent, that an official pronouncement was put onto it. I think, though, in the conversation, we do need to be careful not to overstep the boundaries and say... Just as I think it's inappropriate for the Roman Catholic to say, well, you remove these books. I think to say you included them, that you put them in is also a little bit tricky because there was always this ongoing conversation. But at the end of the day, the 66 books were never in contention. Those were always right. the books of scripture. Okay. So uh, again, to land this for our 21-year-old our university friend, 
Uh, The Protestant viewpoint is probably best summarized in the 39 articles uh, of the Anglican Church, which is a a Reformation, you know, Protestant document, uh, which says basically you should read the Apocrypha. It's useful Mm -hmm. information. It's edifying to the soul, but it is not to be considered as scripture. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's a great summary. All right. So let's move on to the New Testament. Uh, when and we've covered some of this. I just want to make sure we've got these bases covered. Uh, when was the New Testament canon closed, in your opinion? What books uh, were questioned? I think you've already hit that, so we can skip that. But what was the criteria for admitting a book to the New Testament? Yeah. So in one sense, like I said before, uh, there was no choosing. Right. They, there was recognizing. But in another sense, there was a criteria because the early Christians wanted to make sure that the books that were eventually included by their recognition were the books that were properly, that that should be there. So there's, uh, if we look through the long conversation over the decades that Christians are going back and forth on this, there are basically three criteria that they're boiled down to. The first is apostolicity. Does it come from either an apostle or someone who knew an apostle? So we have, you know, direct connection with apostles like Matthew and John and Peter. And then there's connection connection groups to apostles like Mark, who had a connection with Peter yep. and Luke, who had a connection with Paul. And Papias um, says basically that that Mark was writing Peter's gospel, that he was functioning. So the gospel of Mark is really the gospel of Peter as written by Mark. Right. And and I think if you if they this was something that was false, if this was something that um, was made up by the early church, why attach Mark's name onto yeah, it if Peter Peter's was the on. source? Just call yeah, the gospel of Peter and have that's the end of it right there. Yeah. Um, I think actually the fact that it's called the gospel of Mark shows its level of credibility that this basically nobody, um, or Luke too, this traveling companion of Paul. I mean, why specifically mention him if he wasn't actually the author? Well, and you mentioned earlier that Paul quotes Luke as scripture. Right. Um, and it's interesting. Most of, first of all, it's interesting that Paul doesn't often quote Jesus. Um, that, I mean, that, when you realize that, that's a little mind blowing. But then also, mm. it is interesting to note that when he does, it's almost always from Luke. So yeah. in essence, Luke is to Paul as Mark is to Peter. Um, right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So the first criteria is apostolicity. Mm-hmm. Does it come from an apostle or someone who knew an apostle? The yep. second is orthodoxy. And so that's small yep. orthodoxy, nothing to do with the Eastern Orthodox Church. Right. But orthodoxy is simple, simply the Greek word that means right teaching. And so when they looked at what the apostles had passed down within the earliest Jesus communities, and you mentioned Papias, we talked about Irenaeus before, you know, there were people who were disciples of the disciples of Jesus. Yeah. And so they were able to trace the chain of custody back to what Jesus was actually teaching. And when, especially when they looked at the churches that were established by apostles and said, okay, what is being taught there? When you compare that to maybe something like the gospel of Thomas, which as you mentioned, you know, the last verse of the gospel of Thomas, Logion 114 says, uh, has Peter saying women are not worthy of life. And yeah. then Jesus responding, you know, don't worry for I'm going to make her yeah. a male because every female who makes themselves male with inherit the kingdom of God. And so that's problematic. They're like, Hey, this is obviously not the right teaching. And so, (laughs) and so they could do that. They could look at what was within the apostolic community of the teaching of the, the pronouncements of the oracles of God, as Justin Martyr puts it, or the the oracles of the, uh, the apostles. And so orthodoxy is the second criteria. And then the third is Catholicity Hmm. is and once again, and again, small orthodox. <laughs> yeah, orthodox, nothing to do with Eastern Orthodox. Uh, Catholicity, nothing to do with Roman Catholic. Uh, Catholic is just a compound Greek word, kata, meaning concerning, and holos, meaning the whole, concerning everybody, universal, right? Yeah, so that, the universal church. That it was used widely, universally within the church. Exactly, exactly. And so um, th- that's what they that's what they looked at. They looked at these three things. And based on that, and you know, there actually were some books, some early books, like the Epistle of Barnabas and the Shepherd of Hermes, which yeah. were, if we're going to call anything a contender, those were contenders. They weren't crazy. They weren't embellished. They weren't, well, the Shepherd of Hermes is uh, apocalyptic. So it's a little bit more strange. A little and bit it's a little like, legalistic, like actually yeah, reading the Shepherd. Yeah. I'm so glad the Shepherd of Hermes isn't in the Bible, because uh, it, it it's like, it, it's soul crushing a, a little bit, but I mean, it's uh, very pious. Uh, but it yeah. gives you the impression that if, you, if you've ever had, uh, you know, an unrighteous thought, your soul's in jeopardy and you're like, whoa, uh, right. thankful that's not in there. And according to a lot of early church writers, 
Yeah. The Shepherd of Hermes actually passed the criteria of orthodoxy and the criteria of Catholicity, but they knew who Hermes was. Yeah. And exactly. he did not, he wasn't living in the time of the apostles. Yeah. And they say, you know, his brother's a bishop. We know exactly who this guy is. So because it fails apostolicity, even though it was a very prominent book within the early, early church, yeah. that it it wasn't included. So it wasn't just the outrageous books. You know, there were other books yeah. that they they held in high regard that thought, okay, well. If this is scripture, we need to recognize it as thus, but they they clearly came uh, out the other side with their sort of evaluation and saying, no, no, we know that this is, this isn't. We've just got a few minutes left, but uh, I'd love for you to take a minute and explain uh, why is it then that, that our English Bibles don't sound the same, right? Uh, that can be another thing that's used against our, our 21-year-old university student friend. You sit down uh, to open up your Bibles and some people's reading, you know, some, someone's reading from the message, somebody's reading from the NIV, somebody's reading from the ESV, uh, and, and it sounds a little different. And people could say, well, you know, there you go. We, we don't even really know what's there. So why are there slight differences or even significant differences in some of these English translations that we're using? Yeah, some of them have to do with the base text that's used mm -hmm. there. Like King James uses a different base text than the modern translations. And that's a, an entirely uh, different conversation that I think is worth getting into at certain points. But but what were so some of it is base text, but that really only applies to the King James and New King James. The right. rest of it really has to do with translation philosophy and whether we're going to go with something that is a word for word in the order and the way that it's written in the original language in the Greek or the Hebrew, or whether we're going to try to make it understandable in our own language. So for uh, the sake of um, an example, there is a place in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is said, and in the NASB, which is a very kind of word for word translation, it says, let these words sink into your ears. That's literally what Jesus says. It has the illusion of words going into the ear and into the head. Yep. That is literally what he says. The NIV, which is more of a um, trying to get the meaning out of what is being said, translates it as listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Now, if you look at the Greek words that Jesus is saying, that's not what he's saying, but that is the meaning of what he's saying. Right. And so the reason why they read differently is because one translation committee has taken the translational choice to say, okay, we're going to render it exactly when you look at the Greek and you look at what's being rendered in the English, you can follow along word for word. And the other is saying, okay, but we want the meaning of say a Greek idiom, like let these words sink into your ears to be understood by the average reader. And so it means listen carefully to what I'm about to say. That's what we're going to put. So the vast majority, if you're reading different translations, and this is why I recommend a multi-translational approach. Totally. Because you're going to be able to get different things out of the text by reading different translations. I always tell people in my church, if you don't have time to, to you know, spend six years learning Greek, at least buy three different translations of the Bible, right? Because yeah, you know, definitely you put them side by side. Like, so for example, the, the verse we all know so well, John 3, 16, uh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him. Okay. But if depending on the translation, it might not say only begotten. Right. Um, and and yeah. the reason there is because if if you look up that word, you know, monogenes, um, you'll there's a semantic range there. And it mm. it, it you, you look that up in the dictionary and, and it'll say only begotten, only born, uh, or unique only. Uh so you you the translator opens the dictionary, has some options there, chooses. And so I think uh ESV just has only son, and then uh, you know, King James has only begotten. That's translator's choice, I guess, right? Like, you, in a sense, you have to you have to balance that against the theology behind, you know, the begottenness of God. But you're trying yeah. to say that in a way that is faithful to the word and also understandable to the reader. Yeah, that one's a little bit trickier because there is yeah. a debate as to what monogenes means. It's yes. either a compound word of mono, meaning only. And uh, genos meaning kind, in other words, one of a kind or one and only, or no, it's mono meaning only and ganao, which means to beget or bring forth. So depending on where we think that word comes from, we can either read it as only begotten or one yeah. and only. Now I tend to yeah. fall in the camp to read it as one and only. I think that there's a, there's a single new, a single N there. And yeah. so it's not ganao, which has two Ns, it's genos, which has one N. Um, and you can also look at other examples in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It says that Abraham's monogenes huios, 
one and only son. Well, if we read it like that, well, we know he had other sons. Yeah. So if we read it as one of a kind, you know, special son, I think that actually makes more sense. So I totally under understand, you know, the Trinitarian creeds like the Nicene Creed, which describe Jesus as being true God from true God, begotten, not made. I think there's a theological truth to that, but uh, I would say that the translations that use one and only and not only begotten are probably being closer to what the original meant, but it, there's a there's disagreement and semantic range. But that, that illustrates what we're talking about, meaning you have to, the translation work that, that the scholars are doing with the Greek and they're interacting with, with the theology of the church, where they land on that mm -hmm. is going to determine how they land with their preferred English translation. So, you know, again, it's, it's, it's not that there's a difference in terms of one person's got something different in the Greek and the, no, 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 there's it, there's interpretation in this process. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and when you render from one language to another, you have to make choices, choices about, you know, how is this going to be heard? Um, what did this word mean relative to the context? And so that's why, again, I, I think you're well-served if you haven't had training in the original languages, you're well-served by having two or three well-known English translations in front of you that will at least alert you that there's an issue here. There's a question. Yeah. Is this better as one and only, or is this better as only begotten? And then you can go, you can dig a little deeper into that for yourself. But in my mind, that's, that's has nothing to do. That's not a threat to the accuracy of the new Testament. That's just a testimony to the co complexity of the translation process. Yeah. And, and let me just add, you know, man, oh man is someone who does a lot of their, you know, devotion and academic study in the original languages. We have some phenomenal English translation. Oh, absolutely. we don't know how good we've got it, especially yeah. when you look at the history of Bible translation. We have, I think we have too many English translations, huh. but the ones we have are so good. And that's not to say that all English translations are created equally. They're good ones. They're bad ones. They're heretical ones. Huh. But if you, the ones that probably are coming to your mind, yeah. The NIV, the ESV, the NASB, the NET, the NLT, those are really, really well rendered and well translated by godly individuals, uh, translations of the Bible that you're you're probably not going to go astray on. Yeah, 100%. I mean, in, in English, just it well, a wealth of riches. It's just uh, incredible. And, and no other language has it. I mean, even in French, um, they don't have the same options that we have. And I've done oh, some, some teaching and some work in India. And in some of the languages like Telugu, they basically only have what would, you know, would be from the same time period as, as like the, the KJV. Like they, they have not, they don't have NIV and ESV, those kinds of modern language uh, updates. They're still working with, you know, fairly ancient translations. So uh, we, we are just so blessed. Uh, we're, we have a, an abundance of riches and abundance of options. So I'll land with this. If you were going to give advice, we just said you should have two or three English Bibles. Hey, what two or three would you suggest our 21-year-old university student have on his or her desk? Yeah, my my advice is always the best Bible is the one you're going to read. 100%. So, yes. and, and to be totally honest, you're not going to go wrong with the ESV, the NIV, the NASB, the NET, um, I've recently just, uh, I finished my, and my ESV and I started reading, um, I'm on the CSB, the Christian yep. standard Bible. That's These are great well. translations. 100%. And so as, as long as you're not on the fringes, I don't generally recommend paraphrases. Right. I, I think some people give them a worse rap than they probably deserve, but I think there really is no reason to be reading a paraphrase for your regular devotions or your study because the English translations we have that are straight translations are so good and so clear. So yeah, that's my advice. The one you're going to read is the one you should get. And the one that's probably coming to your mind, all of the ones that we mentioned, um, those, those are going to serve you well. All right. Well, thanks very much, Wesley. Appreciate you being with us. If people want to connect more with you, where should they go? Yeah. So the places to go are either apologeticscanada.com. That'll give you a perspective on you know, what we're doing as an organization, where we're speaking or uh, where we're going to be for our next few events or wesleyhuff.com, which will have all of my articles, my blogs, uh, some of the uh, podcasts that I'm part of and some of the infographics that I make. And um, just for people who are in Ontario, the first weekend of November, which is coming up in the following week, uh, we are having a conference in Burlington at Glad Tidings Church. So if you're in the Burlington area, uh, make sure to go over to apologeticscanada.com 
and uh, look that up, uh, register. It's going to be a, a really phenomenal conference. We're tackling issues related to the uh, relate related to um, identity and issues. In fact, Wyatt Graham, who is uh, yeah. a, 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 a compatriot friend of, of yours, the podcast, friend of the podcast, he's going to be yeah. doing a breakout session. So yeah. it's it's going to be it's going to be a great conference um, related to some of the topics we've been doing. We also have an event that's an online event we call the Apologetics Canada Literary Expedition ACLE. And we're going to be doing that in late November. And the particular one we're going to be doing, we've called the gospel according to TikTok. And we've taken some wild claims from TikTok videos related to Gnostic gospels and secret. So teachings. that shouldn't be one of the three Bibles our 21 year old university student has on his or her desk. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Don't read that. Okay. So we're going to go right, going through, look at some of these TikToks and say, hey, this is why some of the stuff you see floating around on the Internet is complete nonsense. And as part of that, we're going to be reading out a Gnostic gospel for everybody and going through it and and pointing out some of the Good crazy for you. Parts, so because like I said, most of the people who are asking these questions have obviously never read these books. Yeah, yeah. So if you're interested in that, it's it's an yeah. online webinar, so you don't cool. you don't even have to leave your couch if if you don't want to. And uh, that can also be found on the homepage of apologeticscanada.com. So apologeticscanada.com and wesleyhuff.com are the two places to go. Great. And I'm just going to recommend a couple of resources you can pop into if you want. Uh, and of course, those who are listening only uh, can't see this, but I'll say that as well. Uh, here's a good one. Can we trust the Gospels by Peter J. Williams? That's fantastic. I highly recommend that. Uh, Scribes and Scripture, uh, the amazing story of how we got our Bible by John Mead and Peter Gurry. And mm. uh, slightly off the board, but really, really good here is uh, the heresy of orthodoxy. It tells the story of... Um, you know, behind this sort of internet notion that there were all these competing versions of Christianity and actually just shows how oh, that's ridiculous. Like you said, the, the canon was recognized very early on and these other books uh, were really marginal and never really had wide acceptance in the church. Oh, I should say that is by uh, Andreas Kostenberger and Michael Kruger. Uh, so just absolutely fantastic. And, it, and would you, any resource you'd want to throw on top of that as well? Yeah, th those are great ones. Um, if you go to my website right on the homepage, I have a button that you can click that uh, are my list of recommended resources. And I have a section on the Bible, um, both the historical questions of the Bible and theological questions of the Bible. And those are breaking down into intro, intermediate and advanced. All of those are Amazon links. So some of the ones you mentioned there are definitely on there. In fact, John Mead, who is uh, the Scribes and Scripture author, yeah. he's going to be speaking at our BC conference mm -hmm. in March 2024. I was so just really chatting with him, to that. And, and he mentioned that that uh, he's going to be up in Canada. Yeah, yeah. And he, you know, the, so, you know, when you meet an American and they always ask when they find out you're a Canadian, they're like, "Oh, do you know so and so?" Well, of course, it's embarrassing because I was like, "Yes, I do know him." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that. That's the one you don't want to admit, right? Because then it gives them a false impression. Yeah, yeah. So that's if you great. go to if you go to wesleyf.com, there's there's that resources button, and I've broken that down for um, the person who's just starting out, and also uh, some resources there for people who really want to dig into the little bit meatier academic volumes as well. Good. All right. Well, that's really helpful. Thanks, Wes. Appreciate that so much. Thanks for being with us, all of you who have uh, joined us, either watching or listening, and uh, we'll hopefully see you right back here in the very near future for another episode of Into the Word. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.